In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... Welcome back to Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beadle, and I'm sorry for the recent lapse. When I started this podcast, I was doing an episode every week, and then I ran out of material that I had already pretty exhaustively researched, so I switched to every other week so I'd have time to read books in advance and stuff. And I meant to get this episode done last weekend, but I did not. Sorry. In my defense, though, I did recently break my arm, so things have been kind of busy and chaotic recently. Also, this episode is one that I am not entirely sure I wanted to do, so I've kind of been dragging my feet on it. Today we're in Trinidad, Colorado, which is a small, very Catholic community just north of the New Mexico border. I actually went down there last year to write a story about Sister Blandina Sagale, a nun with the Sisters of Charity who started one of the first school districts in Colorado, saved a guy from being lynched as part of Wild West Justice, and apparently was BFFs with Billy the Kid. She is being considered for canonization, and a Colorado Springs businessman and philanthropist has invested a ton of resources into revitalizing Trinidad, but so have a bunch of douchey Denver developer bros, so it is this weird Colorado mining town that is undergoing this kind of rebirth um, aided by the fact that, you know, living in Colorado Springs or Denver is way too expensive for more, most people. So places like Trinidad are becoming, you know, the new Colorado Springs um, or the new Pueblo, because I guess Pueblo is the new Colorado Springs, right? Um, it's definitely an interesting town, but the reason for its Western fringe status is that from 1969 through 2010, Trinidad was a destination for transgender people who were hoping to get gender confirmation surgery. Its nickname was Sex Change Capital of the World. So, for those of you who don't know, I think I might have mentioned this before, or maybe you just figured it out. I always assume that people just automatically know, um, but I'm a transgender person myself. I have been transing for almost eight years now. When I began freelance writing, it was actually covering LGBTQ and specifically trans issues. From 2017 to 2020, I wrote about nearly every transgender culture war topic you could think of. Bathrooms, sports, violence, Jordan Peterson, suicide, eating disorders, access to healthcare, trans kids, trans parents, Abigail Schreier, trans women in prison, TERFs, just about any and everything that falls under the trans umbrella, I have probably written about it. It is disheartening today because everything I wrote about and researched and interviewed people for and covered exhaustively is still out there. Uh, it's an election year and Republicans are harping about girl sports and banning trans kids from being able to access health care or, you know, unleashing the power of the state against parents who support their transgender children. It's like by coming out as trans, I got conscripted into this weird battle between trans people and literally the worst people in the world. And the battle shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. I went hard to try to like educate people and challenge the false narratives that were being introduced by politicians and leaders in Colorado. But the attacks keep coming. It reminds me of this Kurt Vonnegut quote. During the Vietnam War, every respectable artist in this country was against the war. It was like a laser beam. We were all aimed in the same direction. The power of this weapon turns out to be that of a custard pie dropped from a stepladder six feet high. All of this is to say, at this point in my life, at this point in my transition, I am quite burned out on talking about trans subjects, especially for my goofy hobby that is basically a part-time job podcast. However, I feel it is an important subject to talk about, so even though I am over it, today we are going to talk about transgender people and the city of Trinidad, Colorado. I'm sure all my trans listeners know this already, but 
since we are talking about transgender people, trigger warning for transphobia, homophobia, sexual assault, violence, discussion of surgery and medical procedures. Welcome to episode 14, Going to Trinidad, the trans episode. There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. things that drives me crazy about discourse around transgender people is the idea that we are a new phenomenon, uh, that people being trans is some kind of challenge in the modern era. Being transgender, like being gay, is simply part of the human condition. I'm not a scientist, but I am aware of studies looking at genetic links for trans or queer identities, the idea that it runs in families, or the idea that maybe there is some aspect of brain structure at work, or hormonal imbalance, or whatever. Um, a lot of people have problems with those kinds of medicalist explanations for the existence of trans people, and I think they are like valid problems with the idea of like a male or female brain or whatever. But all this is to say that no one has yet nailed down the why of trans people. It's just a thing that happens, like being left-handed, but for gender. I'm not a scientist, but I am an English major, and for the first mention of trans people in literature, I guess you could point to Gilgamesh, believe it or not. I should preface this by pointing out that going back to historical figures and trying to make an argument that so-and-so was trans or that cultural identities like hydras in Southeast Asian culture or two-spirit people in indigenous North American cultures are synonymous with transgender people as we conceptualize them today, um, you know, that's kind of tricky, if not problematic. You know, I'm going to use trans people as kind of an umbrella term to, you know, just describe people in the historical record with non-standard gender presentation. Um, I don't in mean in any way to be appropriative or disrespectful, um, you know, just kind of reading into some, some pertinent examples here. But also, Kurt was definitely trans. Anyway, getting back to Gilgamesh, the Sumerian epic, right? Probably one of the oldest examples of human literature. Um, and it does kind of give like an indirect sort of passing mention to trans people. I am working with the John Gardner translation, um, if there are any like serious Gilgamesh heads out there. Um, but early in the poem, there is a mention of high priestesses and temple prostitutes. And the footnote uh, goes on to note, along with the female prostitutes of the temple are male prostitutes or circu of Gilgamesh, though one might expect that they would be of the city god as women are of Ishtar. The line appears to list three classes of ritual priestesses. The Intu or Ubabtu was the priestly feminine remainder of the In priest-king role, feminine when the dominant god of the city was male. Uh, the cultic office disappeared during the Old Babylonian period. Uh, those who throw away the seed is a literal rendering of what may be an epithet of the second class of women mentioned, the Kadistu. Um, while there is no evidence that the Kadistu was a prostitute, there is a text that tells of one who, because of his love for her, he married her even though she was a Kadistu woman. Right? Um, and so none of that is like explicitly kind of like transy, right? Um, but some things to keep in mind here, right? Most people into mythology are fans of like Greek or maybe Norse mythology. Some people get really into Egyptian mythology. Um, 
But Sumerian mythology is like the predecessor to all of them. And you can find like versions of Sumerian mythology in subsequent kind of cultural traditions, um, including Judaism and Christianity. Gilgamesh has a flood story with an ark. And there's a speech about a three strand rope, which is almost identical to Ecclesiastes 412. Um, a lot of spiritual traditions can kind of trace their way to ancient Mesopotamia. One of the primary gods or goddesses that was worshipped was Inanna or Ishtar. She was a fertility goddess, among other things. Um, and there is a hymn to Inanna which has an interesting line. The hymn is kind of describing all the powers and responsibilities that she has. And it goes, to run, to escape, to quiet and to pacify are yours, Inanna. To rove around, to rush, to rise up, to fall down and to something, a companion are yours, Inanna, to open up roads and paths, a place of peace for the journey, a companion for the weak are yours, Inanna, to keep paths and ways in good order, to shatter earth and to make it firm are yours, Inanna, to destroy, to build up, to tear out and to settle are yours, Inanna, to turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. Sounds pretty trans to me, but, you know, I don't know. Like, she was kind of like the, the patron saint of trans people in Mesopotamia or, you know, like the understanding of trans people. And she wasn't a saint. She was a goddess, which is a different thing. I'm sorry. I'm I'm really trying not to, like, upset people <laughs> with this episode, but I feel like I'm going to say something stupid. Um. Anyway, you know, it all sounds kind of kind of trans to me. And, you know, if we jump forward a bit in history, um, Greek historian Herodotus mentions this class of people called the Inari, which were um, a third gender class of Scythian society. Um, and he mentions them here. Uh, the Scythians next turned their attention to Egypt, but were met in Palestine by... Semitychus, the Egyptian king, who by earnest entreaties supported by bribery managed to present their further advance. They withdrew by way of Ascalon in Syria. The bulk of the army passed the town without doing any damage, but a small number of men got left behind and robbed the temple of Aphrodite Urania, the most ancient, I am told, of all the temples of this goddess. The one in Cyprus the Cyprians themselves admit was derived from it, but the one in Cythera was built by the Phoenicians, who belonged to this part of Syria. The Scythians who robbed this temple at Ascalon were punished by the goddess with the infliction of what is called the female disease, and their descendants still suffer from it. This is the reason the Scythians give for this mysterious complaint, and travelers to the country can see what it is like. The Scythians call those who suffer from it Inaris. So I guess like the trans origin story um, in Scythian society was that, you know, there were these guys that robbed this temple of Aphrodite and they were kind of cursed with uh, the female disease, um, which is a good name for it, right? Like instead of gender dysphoria, I'm just going to tell people I was suffering from the female disease, um, but I'm all better now. Um, and according to Herodotus, uh, the Inaris functioned as like mystics and soothsayers. Um, this is the native mode of divination in Scythia, but the women men called Inaris use a different method, which they say was taught them by Aphrodite. These people take a piece of the inner bark of the lime tree and cut it into three pieces, which they keep twisting and untwisting round their fingers as they prophesy. Herodotus wasn't the only one to mention the Inaris. Hippocrates also wrote about them, and according to Wikipedia, the archaeologist Timothy Taylor in his 1996 book The Prehistory of Sex proposed a theory that Inari drank pregnant mare urine to induce, to induce hormonal feminization. He bases his theory on some pastoralist people's custom of consuming animal urine. Ovid poems mentioning... Virus amantis equae, slime flux of marin heat, as an ingredient in uh, medis. I'm sorry, I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Uh, Medicamina fascia feminea. It is a baneful, hurtful one um, that witches would use, and modern usage of conjugated 
equine estrogens for trans-feminine hormone replacement therapy. Despite the lack of direct evidence, this idea has gained popularity and has been cited and passed off as fact on the internet. It sounds like no one knows for sure if our ancestors used pregnant mare urine to affect a kind of medical transition, but pregnant mare urine is the source of modern medication Primarin, like the name is literally pregnant mare urine. That wasn't the only recorded form of ancient transition, though. The Gali of ancient Rome were basically trans priestesses of Sibyl, a Phrygian goddess. They engaged in ritual castration and were, and were referred to as she. They castrated themselves as part of a ceremony called Days of Blood, which was a day of mourning for Sibyl's consort Attis. It was usually celebrated on March 24, so happy Days of Blood to all who celebrate. The Roman emperor Elagabalus is also a candidate for possible transness. They were known for being sexually promiscuous with both men and women, preferred to be called lady over lord, and famously offered vast sums of money to any physician who could perform the Roman equivalent of bottom surgery. It also wasn't just trans-feminine people who are represented in ancient texts. Ovid's Metamorphosis contains the story of Iphis and Iante, and it's about a girl child who is secretly raised as a boy, but who falls in love with a young woman and prays for the gods to make him a real boy, and they do, and they live happily ever after. So as you can see, the existence of gender non-conforming people who desire to live as the opposite sex is really nothing new. While the Bible doesn't mention trans people as explicitly as Herodotus or Ovid, it does mention eunuchs a lot. Uh, Matthew 19.12, Jesus talks about eunuchs. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. It's not hard to read into the idea that eunuchs in a biblical and historical context could apply to trans people, um, but Deuteronomy 23.1 is not uh, as as good as the, like the New Testament text, right? Um, and it says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It's kind of a bummer for me right now, I'm sorry. Uh, just kidding. Um, moving on from antiquity, there are examples of trans or gender nonconforming people throughout history. Uh, Shakespeare and Chaucer both featured characters with androgynous kind of qualities to them. Uh, Cross-dressing was common in Victorian Molly houses. A number of people assigned female at birth, like Kathy Williams, dressed and lived as men in the American West. If you're really curious about trans history, I can't recommend enough Morgan M. Page's podcast, One from the Vaults. It's just a really great resource about historical accounts of transgender people. The modern era of trans medicine and surgical transition starts with Magnus Hirschfeld. He was a German sexologist who really pioneered much of what we know today about transgender people. He was one of the first people to study and treat gender dysphoria as a condition, and one of the first to provide surgical interventions for trans people. Hirschfeld performed the first surgery for Lily Elbe, who was portrayed by Eddie Redmayne in the film The Danish Girl, which I do not recommend. Like, don't watch it. It's bad. Um, Hirschfeld coined the term transsexualism and transsexual. I should note those are kind of dated terms. I think a lot of trans women over 35, like myself, grew up with those terms. Um, I personally enjoy transsexual because it's a noun, not an adjective, uh, but most people prefer the modern usage of transgender man or transgender woman or transgender person. Um, they just like adjectives whatever. Um, so cis people, please take note. Hirschfeld ran the Institute of Sex Research in Berlin from 1919 to 1930. This is from Wikipedia. On 6 May 1933, while Hirschfeld was in Ascona, Switzerland, the German Student Union, which was dominated by the Nazis, uh, made an organized attack on the Institute of Sex Research. Dora Richter, the first known person to undergo complete male-to-female gender reassignment surgery, may have been killed in this or subsequent attacks on the Institute. <laughs> 
A few days later, the Institute's library and archives were publicly hauled out and burned in the streets of Opernplatz. Between 12,000 to 20,000 books and journals, an even larger number of images and sex subjects were destroyed. This included art journals and charts concerning cases of intersexuality which were prepared for the International Medical Congress, among other things. Also seized were the Institute's extensive lists of names and addresses. In the midst of the burning, Joseph Goebbels gave a political speech to a crowd of around 40,000 people. The leaders of the Deutsch, the German Student Union, also proclaimed their own fire decrees. Also, books by Jewish writers and pacifists such as Eric Maria Remark were removed from local public libraries and the Humboldt University and were burned. While many fled into exile, the radical activist Adolf Brand made a stand in Germany for five months after the book burnings, but in November 1933, he had given up gay activism. On 28 June 1934, Hitler conducted a purge of gay men in the ranks of the SA wing of the Nazis, which involved murdering them in the Night of the Long Knives. This was then followed by stricter laws on homosexuality and the roundup of gay men. The address lists seized from the Institute are believed to have aided Hitler in these actions. Many tens of thousands of arrestees found themselves ultimately in slave labor or death camps. Karl Geese committed suicide in 1938 when Germans invaded Czechoslovakia and his heir, lawyer Karl Fein, was murdered in 1942 during deportation. Uh, trans people were, as we can see, one of the first targets of the Nazis. Um, and the damage done to the Institute of Sex Research and its extensive archives and documents was a huge blow to the science of trans medicine. You know, there was really nothing like it before and afterward. It took almost, you know, two decades to kind of get started on all that work again. Um, like, I don't think I can overstate just how devastating this was to trans people, not, you know, as a class of people and as a class of people, you know, who require kind of specific medical interventions and things like that. Um, all of Hirschfeld's research was gone, and doctors who were willing to treat trans people, you know, had to start at square one. Despite the cases of people like Lily Elbe and Dora Richter, one of the first modern transsexuals was Christine Jorgensen, who received gender confirmation surgery in Denmark in 1952. The newspapers had a lot of fun with that story, with headlines about Jorgensen, who had been drafted during World War II, G.I. goes abroad, comes back abroad. Jorgensen would go on to become a patient of American doctor Harry Benjamin, the successor to the work of Magnus Hirschfeld. Benjamin does have some weird connections. He was a contemporary of Alfred Kinsey, who is kind of a creep and into weird occult stuff uh, with Kenneth Anger, apparently. Um, Benjamin also treated Reed Erickson, a trans man and wealthy heir and industrialist, and Erickson's Erickson Educational Foundation helped to fund John Lilly's wild dolphin LSG LSD handjob studies. Um, there is a one from the vaults episode about Erickson who really is like, he's one of the coolest like trans dudes in history. Um, and you should check it out. Um, there's also a premium episode of subliminal Jihad about the dolphin experiment. So um, you can get all the perspectives on that one. Never say that trans people never contributed to anything, right? Um, Harry, uh, John Lilly wouldn't be able to have given dolphins hand jobs without the work of transgender man Reed Erickson. Benjamin would have a lasting impact on trans healthcare in the U.S. His standards of care for trans people would go on to inform today's WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care. The whole standards of care thing is kind of controversial, by the way, and I would argue that most of that is the fault of Johns Hopkins, but nevertheless, it is an issue that is still to still discussed today. Like, literally this week, there is a bunch of discourse about, like, the dangers of informed consent for trans people, um, which is kind of stupid, and it was a ridiculous essay. But, um, you know, I bet there is some undiscovered Herodotus manuscript somewhere where he describes a bunch of Scythian elders debating whether the new Inari should be given the mare urine yet, or if she needs another year of real-life experience. Discourse 
discourse never changes. Anyway, so it's the 1950s, 1960s, and you think you might be trans. What do you do, right? So the first thing you would do is go to your doctor and get referred to a psychiatrist or mental health provider. They would be the one to, like, diagnose you with transsexualism or gender dysphoria. To begin any kind of medical transition, right, so first, like, hormone treatment and then later surgery, uh, you needed authorization from a mental health doctor. They generally required what was called real-life experience before they would give you that authorization, which meant you had to live as the gender you were transitioning into for a year. No hormones, no surgery, just makeup and clothes and moxie. If you were able to successfully navigate that, which... Sounds horrifying, right? Um, then you would be approved for HRT and then surgery. And the intent of this like whole process, ostensibly, was to make sure that candidates for HRT and surgery will be able to, one, integrate into society in their new gender, and two, make sure someone who isn't actually a transsexual accesses hormones and surgery and later regrets it. This, of course, gives us one of the most damaging, at least for me, tropes in not just pop culture, but medical literature as well. Billy is not a real transsexual, but he thinks he is. He tries to be. He's tried to be a lot of things, I expect. And you said that I was very close to the way we would catch him. What did you mean, Doctor? There are three major centers for transsexual surgery. Johns Hopkins, the University of Minnesota, and Columbus Medical Center. I wouldn't be surprised if Billy had applied for sex reassignment at one or all of them and been rejected. John Hopkins did gender confirmation surgery from 1965 to 1979. And instead of, you know, just providing trans people with the appropriate surgery to treat gender dysphoria, uh, the doctors at Hopkins used it as an opportunity to kind of experiment. Um, They wanted to figure out what made someone trans. Uh, This is from a 2014 John Hopkins student newspaper about the program. This program, including the surgery, is investigational. Plastic surgeon John Hoops, who is the head of the Gender Identity Clinic, told the New York Times in 1966, The most important result of our efforts will be to determine precisely what constitutes a transsexual and what makes him remain that way. To determine if a person was an acceptable candidate for surgery, patients underwent a psychiatric evaluation, took gender hormones, and lived and dressed as their preferred gender. The surgery and hospital care cost around $1,500 at that time, according to the New York Times. Dana Beyer found the screening process to be invasive when she came to Hopkins to consider the surgery. She first heard that Hopkins was performing sex reassignment surgeries when she was 14 and read about them in Time and Newsweek. That was the time that I finally was able to put a name on who I was and realize that something could be done, she said. That was a very important milestone in my consciousness in understanding who I was. When Bayer arrived at Hopkins, the entrance forms she had to fill out were focused on sexuality instead of sexual identity. She says she felt as if they only wanted to consider hyperfeminine candidates for the surgery, so she decided not to stay. She had her surgery decades later in 2003 in Trinidad, Colorado. It was so highly sexualized, which was not at all my experience, certainly not the reason I was going to Hopkins to consider transition that I just got up and left. I didn't want anything to do with it, she said. No one said this explicitly, but they certainly implied it, that the whole purpose of this was to get a vagina so you could be penetrated by a penis. Bayer thinks that that it was very important that the transgender community had access to this program at the time. However, she thinks that the experimental nature of the program was detrimental to its longevity. It had negative consequences because when it was done, it was clearly experimental, she said. Our opponents were able to use the experimental nature of the surgery in the 60s and the 70s against us. Sounds familiar, right? By the mid-70s, fewer patients were being operated on, and many changes were made to the surgery and psychiatry departments, according to Schmidt, who was also a founder of the Sexual Behaviors Consultation Unit at the time. The new department members were not as supportive of the surgeries. In 1979, SBCU chair John Meyer conducted a study comparing 29 patients who had the surgery and 21 who didn't, and concluded that those who had the surgery were not more adjusted to society than those who 
who did not have the surgery. Meyer told the New York Times in 1979, My personal feeling is that surgery is not proper treatment for a psychiatric disorder, and it's clear to me that these patients have severe psychological problems that don't go away following surgery. After Meyer's study was published, Paul McHugh... The psychiatrist-in-chief at Hopkins Hospital, who never supported the university offering the surgeries, according to Schmidt, shut the program down. McHugh is one of the most vocal anti-trans medical voices out there, just for reference. So at this time, Johns Hopkins program assumed that there was some kind of sexual motivation for trans people, and that colored the way that they offered surgery and who they offered it to. Echoes of this attitude or maybe not echoes, but like a fully realized, fleshed-out theory, can be found in J. Michael Bailey's book, The Man Who Would Be King, Queen. I do not recommend this book either. Uh, Bailey's book basically posits that there are true transsexuals who are small and pretty and pass well and are attracted to men, and autogynophiles who are just male perverts obsessed with the idea of having sex as a woman. I read Bailey's book in 2004, when I was deployed to Iraq, uh, and struggling not just with, like, the war shit, right? Like, Iraq in 2004 was not a place anyone (laughs) should be. Um, But also gender dysphoria. Um, And after reading Bailey's book, I concluded that I was likely just a weird sex pervert, and any idea I had at age 20 of transitioning was never going to work, and I should just suck it up and live as a man. Um, a few months later, I actually re-enlisted in the army. So that was a thing, right? Anyway, uh, the whole point of having standards of care was to ensure accurate diagnosis and treatment, but it became a gatekeeping process where doctors had their biased sexist attitudes and that influenced who was able to access care and who wasn't. This is also why a lot of trans people during the 60s and 70s kind of skirted that whole process relying on black market hormones and other options that didn't involve having to subject yourself to that kind of gatekeeping. Today, informed consent is more the norm. You go to a doctor or Planned Parenthood or or whoever and you say, hello, I am trans, please give me hormones, and you're on your way. This is definitely the model that I think most trans people prefer, but of course, people raise concerns about young people, young adults, right, aged 18 to 25, who access treatment that way and then regret it. Um, That was the crux of of this recent discourse about trans people, by the way. Um, And, you know, it is better to make a vast majority of trans people miserable than to accidentally treat a cisgender person, right? Right. My source for all the stuff about Trinidad is this book, Going to Trinidad, by Martin J. Smith. I am pretty skeptical of books about trans subjects written by cis people. Smith's book tells the story of Dr. Stanley Biber, who started doing gender confirmation surgeries at Mount San Rafael Hospital in Trinidad in 1969. Biber only did the surgeries and was not part of any larger program like at John Hopkins. His patients sought him out, usually after they had been on hormones for a while and already had an appropriate letter from a psychiatrist. And they did seek him out. Trying to find a doctor who will work with trans patients, even today, is a giant pain in the ass. Once Biber's name was out there, all the girls started hitting him up. As he began accepting more and more patients, he made sure to explain to the community and hospital staff what exactly he was treating people for. And the pushback was not what you would think, especially at a Catholic hospital which was staffed by nuns from the Sisters of Charity. 
Claudine Griggs, one of the subjects of the book, uh, Griggs says she'd once heard that the, one of the Sisters of Charity at Mount San Rafael Hospital had written to the Vatican for guidance shortly after Biber began doing the surgeries. What were the nuns to do when dealing with patients whose elective surgery involved tinkering with God's flesh and blood handiwork? And they got a response back, Griggs says, recalling the story she had heard. It wasn't from the Pope, but from somebody there who said, just keep doing your work. I guess, uh, you know, Smith tried to look into it, and he notes, It appears most likely that at the time, early 1970s, the Vatican did not rule against the practice, which is not quite the same thing as a blessing. So, you know, the Vatican didn't say no, but it also was not, like, endorsing the practice. Um, And, you know, Biber would go on to kind of, um, you know, work with people and kind of let them know what was happening. And, and you know, it, it wasn't some kind of like weird secret in Trinidad, like people knew. And again, we're generally sort of accepting, you know, he was very proactive about informing the local politicians and business leaders about what he was doing and why. Um, and he was very like compassionate towards trans people, um, which, you know, is a wonderful thing to find in a medical professional, let me tell you. Um, while he was doing the surgeries, you know, up to three a week, according to Smith, um, you know, the community, you know, kind of like the Vatican, like they didn't say no, but they also, you know, they didn't, there weren't a bunch of like crazy protests or lynchings or hate crimes or crazy things like that. Right. In 2003, Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender woman herself, took over the practice from Biber. While Biber was a regular member of the Trinidad community, a local surgeon who happened to also do surgeries for trans people, Bowers, in addition to being trans, was an outsider, and by the mid-2000s, interest from the media and journalists and film crews were coming to Trinidad to profile Bowers, and this caused issues not just with the locals, but with hospital administrators as well. Um... Okay. They were building a Jack Nicholas-designed golf course out east of town, says Carol Cometto, who by then had become Bowers' lover, referring to the now-mothballed Cougar Canyon development, which opened in 2008, about the time the U.S. economy began a long, painful nosedive. It was a fabulous golf course, and they were building all these nice homes around there. Big plans. One of its primary developers was a powerful man in town who was not who not only was involved in the local golf association, but also was on the board at Mount San Rafael Hospital. Well, this guy didn't want the retirement community to be mingled up with the transgenders, and he made it rough for Marcy, Cometo says. When the film crews would come, we'd go play golf, and if there were other transgender people before their surgeries, they'd want to take them out to, go- to play golf too. And the golf association hated that. They actually had the churches go against her, the hospital board. They went against her and made it rough for her. And, of course, you know, Colorado Springs, which by the mid-2000s was like evangelical center of the world, uh, got involved as well. The live and let live attitude that Bieber had, Biber had cultivated in Trinidad was never universal, and from time to time, a politician or letter writer to the local newspaper would lament the town's reputation as a surgical crossroads for transgender pilgrims. There was a flurry of such talk in 2005, just two years into Bowers' tenure, when fundamentalist Protestant organizations such as the Trinidad Ministerial Alliance and Focus on the Family in nearby Colorado Springs, decided to make it a cause. Their chest-thumping led to a June 2005 headline in the Pueblo Chieftain reading, Trinidad's clergy fight sex change capital label. 2005 was also the year that South Park did uh, their awful, 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 awful episode about Mr. Garrison going to Trinidad and getting uh, gender confirmation surgery. So, you know, culture and the media, um, they often work together to demonize trans people. I distinctly remember in 2007, I was still in the army and I was reassigned to Fort Carson after having spent a year as a recruiter in Castle Rock, Colorado, which was terrible, by the way. Um, don't worry, I, I was so bad at recruiting people, they fired me a year in and uh, I didn't, I wasn't very good at it. 
Um, but during the in-processing briefing, right, the the sergeant, the NCO, made it a point to, like, warn everybody there about Trinidad. He was like, they do all the sex change operations down there in Trinidad, so be careful who you're getting freaky with at the club. It might be a dude. Let me tell you, the army during Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a real cool place. Bowers left Trinidad in 2010 and currently has a practice in California. They don't do gender confirmation surgeries in Trinidad anymore, but they do have doctors at Denver Health now, which has a special unit just for LGBTQ healthcare. I've spoken to quite a few patients from there, and everyone seems generally pleased with their results. Just FYI. Smith's book focuses on two specific patients of Dr. Biber's, Claudine Griggs, a transgender woman, and Walt Heyer, someone who, arguably, is not transgender, but with a comorbidity of mental illnesses that, you know, led him to transitioning and then later to detransitioning. This is kind of what I was talking about when I mentioned being skeptical about cis people writing books about trans people. You also know it was written by a cis person because he cites a 2018 essay by Andrea Chu Long. Uh, for all the cis people out there, or even the younger transes who might not remember this wild piece of trans Twitter discourse, Long wrote a personal essay about her struggles with mental health, how she wanted surgery even though she knew it wouldn't fix everything, in this essay for the New York Times. It was called, My New vagina won't make me happy, and it had a line that people particularly lost their minds over. Until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it will require regular painful attention to maintain. I'll link to the essay in the show notes. I thought, you know, it was her expression, and it made good points, and, um, you know, these... Trans people have very complicated feelings about their body, and it drives me crazy when people, you know, even fellow trans people try to police that. Um, you know, a lot of trans people at the time had really strong opinions about this essay, but if I am kind of remembering correctly and summarizing correctly, the main arguments were basically, this essay is bad because cis people will read it and misunderstand it and use us, use it against us, which... I hate that. I hate that so much. I'm sorry, but I really, I do not care about what straight cis people think. Um, the idea of living my life in a way that they approve of is ridiculous. And look, I'm sorry, all the, all the straight cisgender listeners out, out there, I don't have a problem with you. You know, I'm sure some of you are, are fine people, right? But I just, I just don't agree with your lifestyle. I'm sorry. Love the sin, not the, love the sinner, not the sin, right? Um, I remember there was like one trans woman on Facebook posting something like negative about the essay and I sort of made it like a snarky comment about respectability politics and she got really mad. Um, I'm sorry, but like the people who were mad about the wound metaphor in that essay and the trans people who posted weeks of dilator pictures after surgery, it's a circle. Okay. Um, Anyway, Smith's book seems to kind of take a similar ideological take, right, about the idea that, like, surgery is important for trans people, but it doesn't fix everything. Um, and so its focus on Trinidad and trans surgery, specifically, um, you know, trans feminine surgery. There wasn't really any mention of trans men or talk of their procedures. But of course, when cis people write about trans issues, they never talk about trans men. They always talk about trans women and vaginoplasty and you know i want to i want to read the books about the metoidoi plasty and and phalloplasty that's uh that would be some interesting representation i feel like um i would say you know in the book griggs and her accounts um they're pretty typical for uh a typical account of trans experience um you know she talks about her life she got kicked out of the air force for gender dysphoria transitioned in the 70s got surgery in trinidad in the 80s lived a pretty normal life uh she does also suffer some of the terrible things that happen to trans people, um, you know, and they talk about it this in the book. One of her first boyfriends puts her in a situation where she gets violently raped by two other dudes. 
when she comes out to her parents as trans, they tell her to commit suicide. Um, you know, the, the book definitely emphasizes the harsh realities of life as a trans woman from Griggs's point of view. And, you know, but I think the big thing with the book, like with Smith's portrayal, right? Like Griggs, she's kind of maybe ambivalent after surgery, right? Like in the same way that Long's essay expresses it, you know, surgery didn't fix everything. There's still issues and she still has some, some kind of complex feelings about her gender identity. Um, And, you know, even though now that she's had surgery and she has a vagina and, you know, she's a woman and, and whatever, there's still some, some questions around it for her. Um, and she actually gets a karyotype test done to like test her cells and chromosomes and see if, um, she had any kind of like intersex characteristics or anything like that. Um, it's pretty much as we suspected, the counselor began. You have the XY karyotype. We found no unusual variation, and concerning the other tests your doctor wanted, we eliminated mosaicism with a 95% probability. Translation, Griggs is, and always had been, a genetic male. Nothing they'd found suggested otherwise. The painful ordeal she'd undergone in Trinidad and in the months since then had not turned her into a woman, at least genetically, and honestly she knew it would not, but she'd held out some hope that the test might reveal some quirk in her genes, some evidence of mosaicism to explain the dissonance she'd always felt between her body and her mind. But no, the test results denied her even that satisfaction, and the result Results felt like one more cruelty heaped upon a lifetime of cruelty. Griggs hung up the phone, feeling numb. As she would later write, the test confirmed that every cell in my body has an XY karyotype, and that now she hated every cell in her body individually, not just her body as a whole. The news made her feel nauseous, made her wish for a hot bath or shower, to wash away all traces of this thing that is me. But of course, she could not do that. I can kill it but I cannot cleanse it. Which, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's a trans woman talking about her experience in her own words. And, and this comes back, you know, maybe, maybe I was kind of hasty. Like it, it, things always sound different when you like read them out loud. Um, you know, but her, like what she, what I just read, like it sounds a lot like there's some turf talking points in there, you know, um, and things like that. And, um, you know, like cis people love to bring that up when they're talking about how awful trans people are, you know, like, Oh, you've got X, Y chromosomes, um, and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and trans people, we internalize it. I, you know, we try not to, to admit it. Um, but it, uh, it's out there and, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I'm, you know, torn on this chapter, right? You know, Griggs, like a lot of trans women who came up during the 60s and 70s, was really looking for maybe something to justify being transgender, right? It's such a radical change to your gender and your body and your sense of self. Um, It can seem wild to go through all of this stuff just for a feeling, right? Um, there are, you know, quite a few historical examples of trans people who have like claimed intersex status as a way of validating their identity. Um, and you know, I've, I've had those thoughts myself, to be honest. I was always, um, you know, as, as a young person, um, and pre-transition, you know, I was kind of like bosomy for a dude. Um, I hated anything where I had to take my shirt off. Um, but you know, I, it all worked out in the end. Um, but I am definitely not an intersex person. Um, I have three children, and most people with intersex conditions or or non-standard chromosomes uh, are sterile, unfortunately, um, which I definitely was not. And, you know, I've learned to kind of make peace with with my body and with society's things and, and with my, my XY karyotype, right? Um, I can say, yeah, I was a weird dude who felt bad and then biohacked my endocrine system and made some modifications. And you know what? Those were all really good decisions. My life has improved dramatically and I am way happier with myself now than I ever was before. Uh, And I imagine that's probably the way 99% of trans people feel about that. 
Um, the book does uh, quote Bowers on that point. Um, so she chimes in about the whole like transgender regret kind of situation, right? This surgery has the lowest regret of any surgery imaginable, including cataract surgery, gallbladder surgery, tubal ligation, hysterectomy, she says. There's no surgery that has less regret than this one. Various studies back up her claim, placing post-op regrets at between 1 and 4% of patients. And when Bowers underscores her point, it's clear she's speaking from personal experience. Patients who opt for surgery so seldom regret their decisions, they've spent their whole life living a lie. By the time they actually go through it, they're like, finally, I've already done that. I've already played that game. I've already been the round peg in the square hole. I've done that life. Am I going back to that life? Never. Never. So, what about Hire, right? Walt Hire. Hire also medically transitioned in the 80s, but his case is so bizarre that it really is unfair to consider alongside the accounts of thousands of people like Griggs and Bowers and me and all of the trans people that I know. Um, Hire is literally the spokesperson for sex change regret, by the way, and he has appeared on tons of right-wing media, not just Fox News, but like the Heritage Foundation. And his appearances are mostly to scare parents of transgender children into not supporting their trans kids. Hire is literally like the wildest, fringiest case of detransitioning that people love to, to cherry pick to attack trans people with. And let me be clear, though, OK, I have like all. I have a lot of sympathy for hire. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for anyone who detransitions. And, you know, I feel like if we lived in a society where it was acceptable to transition in the first place, you know, it wouldn't be unacceptable to transition again. You know, I, I, I like the idea of retransition rather than detransition, but, you know, language. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy um, for folks who have to deal with that. I mean, just going through it the one time, right? So like transitioning in the first place is tough, you know? Struggling with your gender sucks. And it puts you in this position where no matter what choice you make, it will be hard, right? I mean, you either transition and deal with the social consequences and implications of that, or you don't transition and are just miserable and sad and and weird, Um you know, it's tough. Um, you know, once you realize, man, I don't feel great about gender, uh, that's like a box you can't, like, close back up. You know, that's just, you. it forces you to do something about it. Um, you know, I joined the army in part because I thought it would fix me. Uh, so instead of spending my teens and 20s figuring my shit out and hoeing it up, I spent it in Iraq, surrounded by assholes. I waited until I was 29 to deal with it, and now, eight years later, I realize I should have just done that in the first place. But coming back to Hire, sorry, um, his case is highly unusual. Um, Smith notes that he was eventually diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, which kind of sus there as well. Um, and, they, and they mentioned that one of his counselors like worked at Stanford. Um, so I... Is there some grand like MK Ultra CIA conspiracy around trans people? I don't think so, but um, maybe there's some more stuff to dig here, right? Like maybe maybe Walt Hire is a psyop. Um, but um, you know, speaking of like MK Ultra stuff, I mean, Hire grew up in a weird childhood situation. Uh, his mom and dad had like an unstable relationship. His grandmother, when he was young, would dress him up as a girl, like up until he was eight. Um, in his teens or when he was like 10, um, his uncles sexually assaulted him. And the hypothesis is that he developed differently gendered alternate personalities to address all of the childhood trauma. And as an adult, they manifested themselves in this desire to cross-dress and transition. Another doctor who was like evaluating him for disability, um, like social security disability, um, pointed out that he probably didn't have disassociative identity disorder, um, but 
that seems to be the thing that Hire kind of clung to and that made sense to him and that explained um, how he was not, in fact, trans, but just had this other thing. And he was like misled by all these doctors and it was really their fault for not diagnosing him correctly, um, which people cling to what they want to cling to. Right. Um, but Hire also like struggled throughout his life with drugs and alcohol, which isn't uncommon at all for trans people. Um, you know, I quit drinking when I transitioned, uh, and haven't touched the stuff since, but I was a serious alcoholic. I was drunk all the time and I was a terrible person. Uh, I used to drive drunk all the time and then I got into motorcycles and I used to drive my motorcycle drunk all the time. Um, I have absolutely no doubts that if I hadn't transitioned, I would be dead today or in jail, but probably dead. Um, higher, uh, he hung out in drag bars in California and was part of like the cross-dressing scene. And he was able eventually to find a doctor to prescribe him estrogen. And this is, uh, his experience, um, on HRT, right? That night, as luck would have it, a transvestite he'd met at the Roadrunner knew just enough about the subject to lead higher to what he considered the next logical step, a doctor who could prescribe female hormones. But the experiment was unsatisfying, he recalls. The hormones didn't seem to do much other than have a slight tranquilizing effect and lower my libido. So really, that should be your first sign to stop, reverse course, right? Higher started taking hormones before ever consulting a mental health professional, which is kind of a tricky thing, right? I, like, I am totally supportive of the informed consent model for trans healthcare, to be clear. But Hire's case, which again is like a weird, highly unusual case, but it does illustrate why it's not a bad thing for trans people to spend some time with a therapist before um, – they get on HRT or start considering surgeries or any of these things. Um, you know, while there isn't any kind of definitive "Am I trans?" sort of test, aside from the Kogiati, right? Um, hormone therapy is generally considered a pretty good litmus test. Um, I distinctly remember my first day of HRT. I've done a lot of drugs, but estrogen was something else. Uh, I just I remember feeling good. <laughs> for like the first time it was it was like a fog had lifted it was like my brain was finally firing on all cylinders it was like a real life antidepressant commercial i just it was such a stark contrast like i was just like wow i remember being kind of comforted you know before i started hrt because like you know i the therapist kind of told me about this and, you know, if this didn't work, I wouldn't have to actually transition. And I knew that I could rule out gender dysphoria as the, uh, the cause of my problems. Right. But after my first day on estrogen, I was just like, shit, I am definitely trans. That was clearly not Hire's experience. So he continues to drink and party and take estrogen. He gets breast implants, uh, but doesn't tell anyone. He wears a binder for work so no one sees. Um, and he does finally see a therapist and after three sessions gets a diagnosis and a letter for surgery. Hire goes out to Trinidad in 1981 at age 42, but then changes his mind and goes home. He tells everything to his wife, who divorces him, and he, like, gets the implants removed at some point. Um, and then he gets really into religion, uh, continues to drink uh, until blacking out on a regular basis. And then in 1983, returns to Trinidad for surgery, and his plan is kind of wild. He intended to live simultaneously as two people, Walt, who would continue to work as a male, and Andrea West, the female persona he used during his off-work time. This way, I thought both the female and the male could each reign supreme, and my conflict would be resolved, he wrote years later. This seemed very logical and workable. Again, I can kind of sympathize here. Um, I started transitioning uh, and was like presenting as male at work while being myself outside of work. But it was very definitely a temporary thing, right? Like I just needed to finish that school year. I was a teacher, um, you know, so like nine months before I could be uh, full time, as we used to call it. 
Hire seems to have had kind of a crazy plan, which unfortunately was not workable. Uh, when Hire tried to change his name to Laura Jensen, he realized he would have to come out to his boss because it would be on his social security forms and all that stuff. Um, and shortly after he came out to his boss, he was fired, which is relatable. My year presenting as male was my last year teaching at that school. Uh, they let me go, citing a reduction in enrollment, so they didn't need as many freshman English teachers. Um, but I'm pretty sure everyone realized what I was doing. I feel like, like I look back at pictures of myself from that time and I'm just like, I look ridiculous. Like Jesus Christ. Um, so I think everybody knew that I had, I had something weird going on with my gender and, uh, they decided to just kind of ease me out without a lot of fuss. Um, I did, I got another teaching job after that, um, as myself, as Mrs. Beetle. Um, so I did not fall into like despair or ruin. Um, but it was definitely a stressful time. Um, and it was definitely a good thing that I was not drinking anymore, right? Um, after Hire got fired, he went on like a pretty serious alcohol and cocaine bender. And he did eventually end up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And from then on, he kind of just went back and forth, like struggling with sobriety and gender. Um, he would like present as female for some jobs, but then as male in other settings. He got really involved with like this evangelical church. Um, he eventually like became a counselor and worked with people who were like struggling with addiction um, as a woman, as Laura. Um, but by the late 90s, Hire like met someone. And he, by that time, like he kind of more or less completely detransitioned. He had, you know, unfortunate scars from, you know, the breast augmentations and removals. And they're really isn't a lot of ways to fix a vaginoplasty, um, at least not a quick, easy, functional fix, right? But he went back to being Walt, um, and he went on to self-publish some books. He maintains the website, sexchangeregret.com, and, you know, Smith, to his credit, does make sure to include this bit about Hire at the end of the book. It's hard not to weigh Hire's dire predictions against some of the other statements he made during our various conversations, which suggest he gives credence to conspiracy theories and sometimes discredited conservative tropes. He believes billionaire George Soros is a Marxist who has funded his liberal agenda to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, making him the titular head of the LGBT. He also applies that same label to former President Barack Obama, who he says appointed 250 LGBT activists to infiltrate and push the transgender agenda. Heyer believes many of the wealthy people funding the gay rights movement are homosexual or transgender, and we have Soros at the top of the list. They want to destroy the moral fabric of society, of the church, and if you can destroy gender, then you can destroy the basis of man-woman marriage, and then in due time destroy the foundation of society, which is the male-female family and spawning of offspring. So George Soros is totally against God and family. Smith also includes an afterword from Marcy Bowers, which is definitely a good thing to add, right? Like, you know, Smith wrote this kind of weird book, but he did really, I feel like, in the way that cis people do. Like, he tried to, to make it balanced and ensure that, like, a lot of perspectives were included. Um, but I really, I feel like maybe um, Marcy Bowers is afterward would have maybe made a better forward. Like, you read all the book about Griggs and Hire before you get to... Um, this from Marcy Bowers. Martin J. Smith's Going to Trinidad, while beautifully written and well-researched, focuses narrowly on two individuals who experiences may, whose experiences may cast doubt on the validity and accuracy of the gender transition process. The described characters are atypical, expressing an unusual degree of uncertainty in their respective gender transitions compared to most who transition and the many who go to Trinidad. The book also gives credence to the viewpoint of Paul McHugh, the notorious Johns Hopkins psychiatrist whose 1979 junk science drove transgender medicine from academic centers into obscure treatment locales such as Trinidad, Colorado, Scottsdale, Arizona, and Nina, Wisconsin. It also highlights notable transgender diagnostic tragedies. As a result, readers might conclude that those who are resolute in completing the gender transition process strike a Faustian bargain, bartering one's 
biological origins for some sort of artificial reality, with cancerous consequences for each. Make no mistake, both of the central characters in Going to Trinidad are unusual. However, I feel it's important to acknowledge each story for what it is rather than discount the unusual messaging implied by each subject's journey. I also want to offer a more global and expansive look at what the transgender process is about and where we are all going as we seek happiness and fulfillment in our respective lives, transgender, cisgender, or anything in between. From 1969 to 2010, Biber and Bowers performed more than 6,000 gender-confirming surgeries in Trinidad. Today, Colorado remains one of the best places for transgender people, second only to maybe California in legal protections and non-discrimination ordinances for transgender people. Denver Health is doing great things for trans medicine, and even in Colorado Springs, it is not too hard to find good doctors who will help with hormone replacement therapy. So trans people... Parents of trans kids, come to Colorado. It's weird, but it's cool, I promise. Um, with that, I've got to get going. Next time, we'll be in Nederland, Colorado, to discuss one of Colorado's weirdest local festivals. Crying in a bathroom stall, my head against the Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at Western Fringe, W-S-T-R-N Fringe, or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. This episode was brought to you by Odds and Ends Emporium, a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts. Until next time. <laughs>